morning. My name is Peter. I'm here briefly, and I'll be back. But I want to introduce our storyteller for today. Her name is Kim Gardner. And uh, I've been thinking this week about what to say about you, Kim. And the thing that I want to say that I most appreciate about her is the nature of her presence. If you've been around her, you feel a kind of uh, very unique energy coming towards you from her. And I love that. And I think that that's a really... Um, powerful trait to have. For example, Carl uh, has told me several times, Carl's uh, her husband, how random people throughout the day tell their life stories to her. And she comes home just with stories about other people. And Carl's like, how come people never talk to me? <laughs> and uh, if you know Kim, you know this to be true about her. So Kim, come on up and uh, share a story with us. Kim Garden, everyone. Thank you, Peter. Good morning, everybody. I want to tell you a story about one of my favorite God moments. Um, we lived in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We have four children, and they were really young at the time. This happened about in 1994. Um, we were uh, going to a church there, and I was in a women's Bible study group of about 10 really young moms. And we got really, really close. We would go out to lunch and um, take the kids along and do fun little outings. Sometimes we would make meals for each other when we were having babies. And we got really deep into this community of um, these women. And one of the things that I loved to do for them was I love music. And so I would make homemade Christian CD tapes with all my favorite songs. Now, this is illegal, so I wouldn't recommend you doing it. But who uses CDs anymore anyway, right? Kids are probably wondering, what is a CD? Um, but I would make these, and I would decorate the covers, and then I would give them as gifts to these women. It was kind of my thing. But I want to talk about this one particular morning when I got this phone call um, that one of the husbands of my friends in the group had been in a terrible accident. He was outside in the back with his two small boys, and they were making a big pile of debris um, from the yard. They were doing a lot of yard work. And they made this big bonfire. And in Wisconsin, you know, you tend to have more land than you do in Seattle. So they made this thing, and then they were going to, you know, burn it. Um, and Brad, the husband, could not get the uh, fire to go. So he went and got some gasoline, and he poured some gasoline on the pile, not knowing that he's, he kind of put some on his clothing as he sprinkled it on. Yeah, and he um, caught on fire, and he was, it was about 50% of his body with third-degree burns. So he was in intensive care, and I got the phone call the next morning. The children were absolutely fine, just so you know. I just want to preface that. But he spent three months in the hospital, and I got the phone call the next day, and I thought, okay, what do I do? Well, first I've got to call everybody, and I've got to say to them, you know, pray. Get down on your knees and pray and start making food, right? Um, and then I just sat there and I was like, what else can I do? What can I do? And this was the moment of my favorite God moment because I felt God's presence for the first time in my life so strongly. You know how people say, I heard God. Well, I didn't physically hear God, but I felt like God was completely strongly spirit-led in my body saying, Kim, get your boom box, get your CDs, and get down to the hospital. So what did I do? I made a chicken pot pie. Shame on me. I thought, you know, a boombox and CDs with something so serious like this, that, 
that's not right. So I had to make some food, because that's what we do in this culture, right? So I grabbed my chicken pot pie, my boom box, and my CDs, and I headed down to the hospital. I was so nervous. I didn't want to go into a burn unit. Hospitals make me nervous to begin with. I didn't want to see my friend Sue and her husband Brad in such a crisis, and I was scared to death. I remember going up the elevator shaking and thinking, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? Only with God. And I just prayed, prayed, prayed the whole time, walking down the hallway and opening up those heavy doors. And there was my friend Sue right on the other side. We hugged for a really long time with just tears just pouring down our faces. And in that hug, she said to me, I wanted to call you late last night so badly. I was on my way down to the hospital for the second time after putting the kids to bed. And I noticed that one of my children had stuck bubble gum in my CD player and my CD was wrecked that you had given me. And I wanted music in the hospital room for my husband. And my heart stopped, because I thought God knew. God was right there in that moment. We came out of our hug, and she looked down, saw my boombox, and we looked at each other, and we just, again, cried, but with like tears of joy, because we knew that God was in the moment, and he was there for them. I remember walking out of the hospital with the fresh air and thinking, God, that was so cool. Do that again and again and again. I want to be a part of that. That was just amazing. I felt like his little angel for just a moment in time, and I couldn't get enough of that. It just felt so good. So Brad left the hospital three months later. This is a picture of Sue. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, Brad left the hospital three months later, one week before their third child was born. I forgot to tell you that she was in her third trimester when this accident happened. And the third child's name is Marin Irene. Now Mara, Mara, if you know Exodus at all, it's the, the land where the Israelites were and the water was bitter. And God gave Moses a stick and he put it in the water and it made the water drinkable and sweet for the Israelites. So it means bitter, and Irene is named after her grandmother, who means peace. So it's bitter peace, and God made something so good out of that. So this is Sue, and right now, Sue and her daughter, Mara Irene, and their next daughter after that are in India right now. Mara has this huge heart for missions. They've been to India twice, and they left Thursday, and they're there right now. So I just wanted to show you a picture of the girls that they're ministering to in India. And then the next picture is the family. This is the family. They've had three kids since the accident. Aren't they beautiful? That's them. So luckily, because he sprinkled the gasoline on his body, his face was spared. One ear um, had a couple surgeries and stuff, but Brad is a trooper, and that's the, the two sons in the back that were out in the yard that day. That's my story. I got used, and I was thrilled to do it. So thank you. So we have the scripture reading for today. It's from the book of Colossians. It's Colossians 3, 15 to 25. Please follow along in your Bibles or use your screen. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishment, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with the thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving him thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not embitter against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that the Lord will receive the reward of inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. And uh, I'd like to start with a prayer this morning. Can I ask you to bow your heads? Lord, thanks so much for gathering us here this morning. We also pray for those of us who are enjoying uh, midwinter break and are off somewhere. Pray that you'd protect them, keep them safe, and let them really enjoy each other and come back Refresh those of, those of us here, help us to hear from you today. Um, we ask you to speak to us and give us something that will be helpful and true and bear fruit in the seasons and years to come. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, for those of you who don't know already or can't see, uh, my children suggested I start off by talking about this so that I don't have to have a repeated conversation about I'm wearing a boot right now because um, I broke my foot on Saturday. And uh, it's been funny to uh, hear the comments uh, from people. So here's how I've categorized it so far. Those of you who know that I've been in uh, training for the Boston Marathon really feel that with me. You've been tracking with me on Facebook on all my runs. And so you give me that same look of, oh, no. Does that foil your plans, that kind of look? Uh, those of you who are younger but aren't aware of the marathon training, you give, you give me a lot of empathy, like, oh, Peter, I'm so sorry, some version of. Those of you who are older, who have experienced more life, have just sort of shaken your heads at me and go, bless your heart, son. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the pattern I've picked up on. But uh, Kent and I and a bunch of my family members, we were clearing up the backyard because lots of limbs had fallen off the two trees in my backyard. And uh, I was using a chainsaw to cut a piece of limb that I had uh, about that thick. Kent estimates that uh, the half that fell on me was maybe about 60 pounds. I had just cut it, and then it fell and just hit right on my right toe bone, and it broke. So, but um, there's still hope for the marathon, so that's the one prayer I would ask of you, that somehow 
I'm able to push through this and run even better than I would have without this broken toe. We have 56 days uh, before the race, and I'm in this thing for 27 more days. So we have time, folks, okay? So that's the prayer. All right. Uh, today we are continuing in the series in the book of Colossians, and we're going to talk about peace today, this concept of peace. And as I started thinking about what peace is and where it comes from, how we get it, do we even want it? And I think we do want it. I think we really long for it. I think peace is kind of a rare uh, thing that we experience or get to have. And I believe that it's God's will for us to have it. And so I want us to talk about that. So we're going to break it down a little bit because I think uh, it's such a trite word now. You know, it's been stripped of a lot of its power and meaning. And so I'm hoping to breathe some new meaning and power into this word. And so in order to do that, we got to do a little bit of homework. Uh, the word peace in the Hebrew is the word shalom. Many of us know this word. It appears 237 times in the Hebrew Bible. And it basically means uh, these words in this uh, order. It appears in these meanings in this frequency. The first is complete, the idea of perfect or complete. The second is safe. You feel shalom when you're safe. First, uh, third is uh, when you're healthy, when you're physically healthy, emotionally healthy, organizationally or relationally healthy, it's an experience of shalom. Next is the word quiet, when there's kind of a tranquility and a hushness, you're experiencing shalom. When things are right with your friends, uh, that's shalom. And then finally, when you're free of conflict as a person or as a nation, you are experiencing shalom. So that's the Hebrew word for peace. In the Greek, uh, it's the word irene. It appears 92 times in the Bible. And the most common definition or usage of this word peace is similar to the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it was the word complete or whole. And in the Greek, it's the word one. And then the second most common usage is the word rest. When you're experiencing rest, you have peace. The dominant definition for this word peace, therefore, in the Bible, is that you are experiencing peace or you are at peace when you are set right within the larger context to which you belong. So there is no way that you just feel peace by yourself, within yourself. It's not subjective to just your own experience of the moment. But really, in reality, actually, you are set right within the larger structure that you belong to. There's something absolute and objective about the experience of peace as the Bible talks about it. It's not just your feeling. When you feel it, there's something actually right about your life. You are fit like in the right place. I, of course, thought about the game Tetris. We haven't played Tetris in a while, have we? Do you guys remember what Tetris is? You got these different permutations of four squares forming different shapes and they're falling from the sky and you gotta order it just so. And if you're good enough, you get to put the falling pieces into a shape that's solid except for one skinny little column, right? And then 
when the, should the gods be pleased with you, they send you a piece that's a long rectangle, and it fits perfectly inside that space that you created. And when that fits, the whole game celebrates by blinking and making noises, and you celebrate in your heart. That's the biblical concept of peace. <laughs> it's, did you know Tetris was biblical? There is a kind of should be when the Bible talks about peace. And I'm not sure how much our culture appreciates this idea of should. There is an ought. There is a right and wrong. You know, there's a design to the order of the universe. There is a way things were meant to be. There's a way that we're supposed to be. And the closer we move towards the should or the ought or the design, the more we feel peace. There's a kind of resonance we want to strike in our life, and we are at rest when we are experiencing that. This is the Bible's cornerstone, that there is a creator, a designer, and it's God. And God has an intent. He has a purpose. There is meaning we experience the closer we move to God's purpose for things. We use words like fulfillment. What does that mean? It's, it's implying concepts like destiny. You're not just here at random. Somebody knew you and created you in your mother's room. You have been fearfully and wonderfully made, and God has a wonderful plan for your life. As trite as that sounds now, as churchy and Christian-y as that sounds, there's a truth to it, that somebody really does know you and care about you and has a plan for your life. It's what the Bible calls truth or logos, meaning, destiny, rightness, righteousness. To be set right. Probably my favorite definition of the word peace, biblically speaking, is the word flourishing. There's a kind of flourishing when there is shalom in your life. If you're fighting, if you're resisting, you are not going to feel peace because you are not at peace. It's not just your feeling, but in reality, something is off. And again, I refer back to Tetris. What did it feel like when the wrong piece falls in the wrong spot? It ruins your game. It makes you like, feel like you just want to give up, start over again. And that's what we feel when we are not rightly aligned to God's will for our life. As I was thinking about this, I thought about physics. And uh, I don't know, how many of you know Margaret Wertheim? She's pretty popular, Margaret Wertheim. No? Oh. Well, I thought about her this week. <laughs> she's a physicist, but more than just a physicist, she's a writer. And she really wants to make physics accessible to non-physicists like us in the room, apparently. Uh, but she says this, uh, she has this wonderful thread in her thinking that I want to point out here. She says, for example, you know, we've been... Uh, living in the world of general relativity for so long. That's the only kind of physics we knew. And then we were introduced to a mind-blowing way of thinking about the universe called quantum mechanics or quantum theory. But there was no way to reconcile general relativity and quantum mechanics. And then, she says, until we came up with this idea of string theory. 
She says, now finally, maybe string theory can reconcile general relativity and quantum mechanics. Now, I don't know what I'm talking about either. I'm just quoting her. <laughs> and then she says this little thing. But she says, you realize whether string theory connects general relativity and quantum mechanics or not is irrelevant as far as the universe is con concerned because it gets along just fine without us understanding or reconciling these concepts. She grew up very strongly Catholic, and in a recent interview I heard of her, uh, she said her Catholic upbringing and her faith in God is the single most powerful thing she understands about physics, and that's been the greatest influence in the way she thinks about physics. Now, she'll tell you she's not a Christian or something like that, and she's been often accused of being an atheist, but she in this interview said, absolutely not, I believe in God. I just don't know how it all works together. So she's wrestling with this concept of faith. But she says, she says that there is no physicist or any scientist or any human being for that matter that's creating any new reality by understanding it. Reality is reality. And we have the pleasure and the privilege and the problem of trying to figure it out. We are catching up to it. We are understanding it. We are articulating it. But we are not creating it. Does that ring true? Is that true? That's absolutely true. Before we use the words string, before the word theory, and came up with something like string theory, does string theory exist? Yeah, it did exist. Okay, let's go even more fundamental. One plus one equals two. Did you, did you invent that? Before you learned about 1 plus 1 equaling 2, did 1 plus 1 still equal 2 with or without you? Absolutely. There is a reality independent of our articulation or understanding of it. What do we as conscious beings, as created beings, get to do? We get to play in God's universe. We get to do things like Organize, discover, articulate. Bible's favorite word for our job in the created order of things is the word manage or steward. God has made us to be managers of his creation, but we don't create creation. Nobody gets to create. Even, even thermodynamics acknowledges this, right? Nothing is actually created or destroyed. All we're ever doing is playing around with what already is. Reality already is. And I can extrapolate from this truth that I can't refute in any way whatsoever to say my life also is waiting to be discovered. God has a will for me. I don't make God's will for me. I'm a created being. There's no Adam going, I'm going to make this electron spin around me. No. That's what electrons do. It was already created to do that. If you gave consciousness to the electron, the electron goes, whoa, I'm spinning really fast. But it doesn't make itself spin. Now, I want to establish this truth, this corner truth, because it is the cornerstone of what peace is all about. Now, you can think about peace any way you want to, but the conclusion I've come to again after focusing on it for a couple of weeks is that 
There is no peace until you acknowledge there is such a thing as a created order to the universe. You have to believe that God exists. And that this God who exists has a purpose. He wasn't just randomly flinging stars into space or putting you together in your mother's womb. But he has a purpose and plan for you, a way he wants you to be in the world. He made you unique, your personality, your gifts, the opportunities, the life that you live. You were plucked into, plunked into your ethnicity and your geographic location and you had the kind of parents you had and the life you've had because God is shaping you according to his will. And when you believe that, it gives you a confidence and a rightness about your life that results in you as a conscious being experiencing something that we call peace. It's the way things ought to be. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're on the fence, I want you to think about this. I I challenge you to think about it. Is it possible for you to have peace unless you acknowledge there's something more truthful that you're moving towards? Is it possible to experience peace? And why would you? And if you do experience peace, is that peace worth anything? It's just temporary. It's fleeting. It's subjective. It's just an angle. It's the way you're interpreting. It's a mind game you're playing. Is that all peace is? I don't think so. I think if you look at the history of how much humanity has longed for peace, the Bible says we don't know that even creation itself is groaning and longing for the universe to be made right to come in alignment with God's will. Now, if you don't believe this, what is your peace based on? Why do you feel peaceful? Is it worth trying to keep? I think it's a fair question, and I bring it to your attention today. The Bible uh, promises big rewards for those of us who will acknowledge this truth. Matthew 11, 28 to 30, Jesus puts it this way. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the promise that the Bible makes, that if you acknowledge Christ as Lord, that's what coming to him means. There is a a way he's inviting you to live life that's filled with peace, that you're going to be relieved of your weariness and your burden. He's going to give you the thing that he calls rest. Do you want that rest? We're all going to be bearing some kind of yoke, but he says, take my yoke and learn from me. There is a way to live, folks, that provides rest for your souls. And that's peace. And uh, as I search my own mind and heart, uh, I don't know if there's another kind of peace that's worth uh, striving for besides the one that Christ gives. I don't know how else it could possibly work that's worth me fighting for. 
Uh, I want us to read some verses about peace that the Bible uh, has to give to us. I want you to see it's really a thing. Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 2 Thessalonians 3, 16, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. Philippians 4, 6-7, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3, 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Peace is a big deal. It's possible to experience peace in our, peace in our life. It's possible to travel or travail through life all the while having a kind of peace that only Christ himself can give because he is the prince of peace. He understands peace. He invented peace. He administrates peace. And his desire for us is his peace. So it's possible. I want you to have hope that peace is possible. Do you want it? Do you need it? Would you ask for it right now? Say, God, give me peace. I need peace. I want peace. Albert Einstein said this about peace. Peace cannot be kept by force. It can only be achieved by understanding. I want you to uh, not miss what he's saying here. By force means that you have your own ambitions and your own agendas and your own idea of how things ought to be. It's your ought to, your should be's. And he says that's called force. And peace doesn't come that way. Instead, he says it can only be achieved by understanding. That's a more submissive position, isn't it? It's saying there's a higher reality that you can't control. Somebody else, something else has an agenda that's different than yours. And when you submit to that agenda and you say, no, 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 I don't want to overwrite that agenda, but I want to understand it. I want to make peace with it. Then you will have achieved peace. Einstein, of all people, knew the physical universe has a logic all its own. And he's saying, you don't fight that. That's, that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is knowing what you can change and what you cannot. How you are supposed to live is what results in peace. You come to grips with reality. You define reality accurately. And then you align yourself to it. Peace is not what we feel on the inside. But it's what is based on external realities. Things are true or not true. I love this way of thinking about peace. 
Luke 14, 26 says this. This is Jesus talking. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What is Jesus teaching there? He's saying all these other agendas that people have for you, all these other allegiances that compete for your allegiance, they cannot align your life, give you the kind of peace that only I can. Compared to how much allegiance and loyalty you have to me, what they experience might feel like hate. That's what he means when he says, unless you hate your own mother and father and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even your own life. He's saying none of these people know how your life should be lived. At any given moment, they may contradict God's will. And when that moment comes, you have to know to choose my will for your life. Self-denial and denying these other loves in your life, it's not for the sake of denial only, but it's as a way, as a means to embrace God's will for you because that's the only way you will have peace. Now, um, I don't know how many of you can read this, but I think the passage is printed for you in your bulletin, but I wanted to put it up there all in one shot so you can track uh, the logic of this passage. This paragraph is about the peace of Christ ruling in your hearts. The whole paragraph is about that. It begins that way. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Everything else is is describing how the peace of Christ ruling in your hearts happens. So I don't want you to miss the theme that's consistent throughout this passage. It's not random instructions that Paul uh, is giving here. Here's what Paul is saying. Peace is inner and outer congruence. Inner and outer congruence based on loyalty to Christ and trust in his loyalty to you. That's basically what the first verse is saying. Inner and outer congruence based on loyalty to Christ and trust in his loyalty to you. So therefore, the passage teaches that peace comes from not violating your conscience towards Christ. That's first of all. Second of all, Paul says, if you have a master other than your earthly masters, you will have peace ruling in your hearts. As long as your earthly masters are the only masters you're serving, you can't have peace. That's what he's teaching the slaves. And then he says to uh, the married couples, he says, if you don't have a spouse other than your earthly spouse, you cannot have peace. If you look to your earthly spouse as your ultimate spouse, you will be miserable. You will not and cannot have peace. You have to understand that your spouse is ultimately just a stand-in for the spouse that is to come, for the love that is to come, for the companion that is to come, for the friend that is to come. So there you go, one really practical advice about peace for those of us that are married. How do you release your spouse? How do you learn to hate your spouse properly so that the peace of Christ can rule in your hearts? And then he says to the parents, know that God is a parent 
to you. That when you are being a parent, you are also being cared for by somebody more powerful than yourselves. Unless you have this perspective, you're going to fail at being a parent to your children. You cannot parent correctly until you understand that you are a stand-in. That somebody else loves even the child you're trying to love more than you could ever love that child. There's a kind of submission to a higher authority and a higher reality about what parenting is all about. And when you have that perspective, when you understand that reality, then your parenting comes in alignment with actual reality and you have peace. That's what Paul is saying. You have to see other people as God's children and then you will have peace. If you do work, you have to know that you work for the Lord. It's not for man's eyes that you do things. It's for God's eyes. He's the one that judges. He's the one whom you serve. He is your master. You have to be thanking not just people, but you have to be thanking God. It's ultimately God from him and through him and to him are all things. Paul asks in the book of Acts, what have you been given that you have not received? And so we know, we know God is behind it all. That if you're trying to please people, you're going to be miserable. But if you're trying to please God, you will have peace. If you fear people, you will be miserable. But if you feel, fear God, you will have peace. If you serve people, you will be miserable. If you serve God, you will have peace. And in your living, in your serving, in your giving, in your, uh, in your life on earth, you have to know that your reward is ultimately from God himself. Then you will have peace. To the extent that Jesus Christ is your Lord, to that extent, you will have peace. I thought about this. If you've been following in the passage, you know all this is right from the text there. And you see its relation to the concept of peace. I was thinking about my own uh, life, and uh, I made a list of, uh, of uh, six domains that are very important to me. Number one is my marriage. From it flows everything else. It's really, really important. Second is my relationship to my kids, how my kids are doing. Third is work. My work matters to me a lot. Money matters matter a lot. I need financial peace. Relationships matter a lot. People impact me like nothing else. So I have to take care of those things. And lastly, it's the domain of my health. My health matters to me a lot. And I ask myself, how do I feel peace and flourishing in these domains in my life? So I ask the question, which way do I have to look at my marriage for me to experience peace and for there to be flourishing in my marriage? So A, option A is, I believe that Susie is the greatest love in my life. And I look to her for her to be everything to me at all times. How long will I be happy, folks? Will she feel suffocated? Will she feel overwhelmed? Will she feel annoyed? Now, what if she looked to me that way? Will that work? Can little old me bear the weight of her needs and expectations? 
There is no way neither of us can survive that kind of marriage. For us to experience flourishing and peace in our marriage, here's what I know. Even if I wasn't a Christian, I know I have to look at her through another person's eyes. And I have to be the number one person in her fan club, and I have to desire her flourishing even at the expense of my own. And if I can hold her loosely that way and be supportive of her that way, champion her cause, and be her cheerleader and sit in her corner that way, I know, in theory, if I can do that, then she will flourish, and I will flourish, and our relationship will flourish. But here's what I don't know. I don't know how to do that apart from Jesus telling me, hey, hey, buddy, I love her more than you do. If you want her to flourish and you want you to flourish, you have to see her through my eyes and get on board with my plan for her life, not your plan for her life. So that's what I know to be true about my marriage, that that's how marriage works best, to hold her loosely, to see her from God's perspective. But how can I do that apart from God's help? Okay, what about my kids? I think one way to think about my kids is these kids belong to me. I made them. I brought them into this world. They owe it to me to grow up well, behave well, and be my retirement plan. (laughs) They need to be the source of my pride. They exist for my ego. That's why we have children. History proves it. The poorer your country, the more kids you have because they're your insurance policy, your retirement plan. They become the thing I'm proud of and they will either bring me pride and joy or bring me shame. That's why they exist. That's option A. Option B is what? I look at them through God's eyes. I recognize that I exist to be God's will in their life, not to be Peter's will in their life. And I ask of God before I answer my kids. And I know that's how it works best, but how can I do that? How can I hold my kids at that angle and with that kind of grip strength unless Christ really is my Lord? So I agree that that's true. What about my work? I believe my work exists, option A, to give me happiness, to make me feel purposeful, that the meaning I need in my life comes from my work. My work exists to help me fulfill my destiny. Is that true? Should that be true? Can any work bear the weight of my need to be purposeful in my life? Absolutely not. That's not an option for me. I have to work hold loosely and say, how can I serve my constituents? How can I serve my staff? How can I exist for other people at my work? How can I hold that perspective, that other-oriented perspective, if Christ is not my Lord? I can't do it. And so I go down the list like that with money and with health. I mean, when this toe thing happened, my first thought was, oh, that's why steel toe boots exist. (laughs) My second thought was, what about my marathon? 
And then my third thought was, oh, no, I'm going to be a burden to my family. We can't afford me to be a burden. But how can I have peace when this happened? By the way, it's been fun because lots of you have been coming to me and telling me about all your physical ailments that I didn't know about. (laughs) I know all these circuits about all the medications you're taking and how you're coping. Awesome stuff. We're all broken people, turns out. Broken toe or not. I feel peace. I really do. I felt like, oh, this will be okay. Because my God is redemptive. He's going to work all things for the good. There's an economy I trust. If I look back on my life, he's proven himself faithful. I have no reason to doubt that this too shall pass. Not only pass, but be redeemed and used for good. I know that to be true. And so I have peace based on alignment with actual reality, not just some mind game I'm playing with myself. That's what I love about Christianity. It could actually bear the weight of life because it was designed for life. In fact, it designed life. Uh, I'm going to conclude here. I want to remind us as we end on this note that peace doesn't just happen, that it was achieved by Christ for us, that it was purchased at a price, and that God himself had to undergo a tremendous amount of suffering, a kind of tearing in the fabric of peace itself, that Christ on the cross cried out, why have you forsaken me? For the first time, Christ experienced non-peace, violence done to his relationship with God the Father. And it was with that price that peace for us was purchased. Romans 12, 17 to 21 says this, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as, as, far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And this work is what Christ has done. He has overcome evil with good, with the payment of his own blood. He has repaid the debt we could never repay. Isaiah 53, 5 says this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Friends, peace is not naive. It's not avoidant. It's not simplistic. But rather, it is courage. It's a process, and it's a result of work that God alone has done for us that we may have peace, that we may flourish. May you find peace and grow in his peace, be an agent of peace, and look forward to the Prince of Peace. In your life, these days, in your politics, in your relationships, in your work, within yourself, in all the domains of your life, May you experience God's peace. I end with this trite quote, no Christ, no peace. And may this trite quote be true for you. Amen.